Welcome to Electric Sheep, the knitting podcast from Hoxton Handmade. Episode 8, Hunting Words and Telling Tales. Good afternoon on this beautiful sunny Sunday. I hope you're all out enjoying the sunshine. Um, I'm just looking at it longingly through my window at the moment. But lots of things to tell you about in this week's episode. Firstly, we're going to be talking about words and the joys of storytelling. We'll also be looking at knitting that's been featured in the papers and in the cinema lately. And of course, if you live in Europe, you'll know that this weekend was the Eurovision Song Contest, um, an extraordinary event uh, that we will be looking at in closer detail. Plus, I'll be seeking advice from you on a a slight conundrum I have regarding a knitting pattern that I'm on the hunt for. My thanks to those of you who've contacted me over the last week to say hello or uh, to give me some feedback about the podcast. Um, Always lovely to hear from you. Um, I'll be putting all the links uh, for the podcast will go on the blog as usual. And you can reach me at hoxtonhandmade at gmail.com. So if you have your knitting to hand and a spare half hour, I hope you're sitting comfortably and I'll begin. I love words. To me, language is an alchemist's potion with which spells can be cast and the most mundane of materials turned into gold. Although I would be the first to admit that English may not be the prettiest language, and it's certainly not the most logical. Anyone who's tried to remember how to spell conscientious or work out why cough, through and rough should all be spelt the same way will have given up on any sense of rhyme or reason long ago. Knitting, of course, has its own language, as well as its particular vocabulary of frogging, blocking and entrelac. It has its own almost hieroglyphic shorthand. K2TOGTBL would lead many people to assume a cat had walked across your computer keyboard. Only a knitter would know it actually makes perfect sense and translates as knit two together through the back loops. As with any hobby or specialist interest, there is the inevitable jargon that comes with the territory. Casually dropping these words into everyday conversation with non-knitters can lead to a certain amount of confusion or embarrassment. I happened to mention something about blocking a sweater, and my mum's partner picked up on this and quizzed me about it. He now takes great delight in mentioning blocking to me, often randomly in the middle of a conversation, clearly enjoying the fact that he is privy to this mystical process and also that he finds it funny. I think it's sweet of him to try and engage with what I'm doing, but there are other knitting terms that are more amusing if you're really that desperate for entertainment. Frogging, for example. Explaining what this means is simple enough. Explaining why it's called that rather makes me cringe. Well, it's because you rip back the row of knitting to undo it all. You know, rip it. 
which is kind of the sound a frog makes. So it's called frogging. And being met with the dead stare, you know such a weak pun deserves. There are certain elements of knitting language, however, in which even the most experienced knitter may not be fluent. Charts, for example, can cause no end of trouble and are frequently lost in translation. Well, they are with me at any rate. In short repeats, with the minimum of complexity in the stitch pattern, I can handle charts. But it doesn't take long before I become hopelessly confused, and it's nearly always the fault of a yarn over. Is the yarn over itself that whole square of the chart? Or is it that you do the yarn over and that square is the stitch you then knit? See, I'm confusing you now, it's hopeless. But then this should be no great surprise to anyone whose mind operates in a verbal rather than pictorial context. I'm not great with directions or spatial awareness in general, although this shortcoming has led to a fairly high proficiency in map reading, albeit from necessity and hard training rather than any natural aptitude. So of course I'm happier with written out instructions than charts. Languages were always the one thing at school I was good at, well, except for German, which I studied for a year before putting my massacre of this noble Teutonic culture out of its misery. I did French and Latin for what felt like decades. But I've always been fascinated by the way certain languages cater for expressions that others ignore. The classic example being that French has no way of distinguishing between a house and a home, whereas in English, that distinction is the basis of Martha Stewart's entire career. English itself has always been adept at simply stealing the words it lacks. And where would we be without such gems as protégé and graffiti, schadenfreude and klutz? The richness of the English language is something I have always revelled in, and yet it is also something of a downfall. If you love words, then you are on a permanent hunting expedition to find the right one. And with English, the agony of choice is almost overwhelming. This desire to communicate and this sense of forever failing to do so, is, I am convinced, at the root of many a writer's career. But a love of words can be a drawback if you sound the way I do. I've always been teased for the way I speak, a childhood of being accused of having a plum in my mouth, leaving me with the paranoia of the poshly spoken. I worry about it less these days, but my somewhat archaic turn of phrase doesn't really help the cause. Of course, I don't speak this way in an attempt to impress or out of some sort of snobbery. It's simply because, to me at any rate, words are fun. And I know I'm not alone in thinking so. A quick online poll on Twitter revealed some favourite words like ubiquitous and discombobulated. Words that can leave a beautiful sound in the ear and a rich taste in the mouth. They are satisfying. And who doesn't relish the release of shouting something out loud or of whispering something in secret. Words have power. They can be a weapon and a peace offering. They enable us to classify, to pass on knowledge, to tell stories, to share thoughts, and most important, to document knitting patterns. Several of you listening to this podcast have been kind enough to describe my style as articulate. Much prefer to the other possibilities of verbose, antiquated, long-winded, or circumlocutory. When I lived in New York, I worked as an au pair looking after two little girls. Ordinarily, I was quick to translate my vocabulary, substituting pavement for sidewalk, boot for trunk, trousers for pants, and so on. But one afternoon, making dinner, I made the mistake of referring to fries as chips, and the toddlers were quick to correct me. I explained that, in England, we called fries chips. 
I was met with the kind of withering look of contempt only a four-year-old can muster, as she told me, but you don't speak English, we do. My attempts to explain that there was English and then there was American English and that the two weren't entirely the same fell on some rather confused ears as they demanded to know what did I call a plate, a table and a chair when at home. There was a little part of my brain that had to be restrained from trying to instruct them on the history of the English language, whilst remembering that they had never heard of Shakespeare, Milton or Austen, and thus had no idea of how many English authors were rolling in their graves at that precise moment. Instead, I had to satisfy myself with the knowledge that they had at least been introduced to less literary English influences, and after many years of British nannies, called underwear knickers, and thought English chocolate was far superior to their homegrown variety. But it struck me that language is a proprietary thing, a matter of national pride that's taken quite seriously. When I was studying my French A-level, I had to spend three weeks with a family in France and had daily admonitions from a six-year-old, exasperated with my pronunciation. It seems I'm doomed to be lectured by linguists barely out of kindergarten. Language is an intrinsic part of our culture, deeply rooted in the particulars of family and where we grew up. There was a time when academics, real-life versions of Henry Higgins, could pinpoint someone's hometown with remarkable accuracy simply by listening to their accent. Nowadays, as accents become more generic, it tends to be limited to a region, but despite the influences of American television and Australian inflection, British accents are still fairly distinct. The infamous Susan Boyle, appearing on Oprah, had to have her speech subtitled as American producers feared their home audience would not be able to penetrate her strong Scottish accent. Speaking aloud is a part of this linguistic culture that I have been having to relearn for this podcast. Most of us seldom speak in public in any formal context anymore, and reading aloud is something we only do for children. But there is wonder in listening to a word take flight, after all, a book is not a passive object, it is a conversation between a text and its reader. Having that conversation out loud naturally leads you to listen to it more closely, as I'm sure many knitters who are fans of audiobooks will know. But speaking the story yourself is the other side of that experience. You are forced to use your voice to imbue the words with character and meaning. It becomes a performance, albeit a relatively natural, unaffected one. Try it. Read aloud one evening to your partner or to your too-old-for-bedtime stories children, or ask them to read to you. Or if not a book, simply ask them to tell you a story. Storytelling is such an embedded part of our culture that we're not always aware when we're doing it. But think of the countless anecdotes, jokes, family histories and explanations we offer to one another every day. Some of these will even be part of a subconscious repertoire, tales we often find ourselves repeating to an audience either because they're popular and we have the reassurance of knowing they'll go down well with a crowd, or because there is some aspect of our lives that requires repeated explanation. Why we live abroad, why we don't eat meat, how we came to be in our present job. We are a society defined by our stories. Reading and writing are powerful tools, and I shudder to think I might have been born in a different age when women were rarely taught to do either, and sometimes expressly forbidden, for fear of the havoc that might be wrought on a so-called weaker feminine mind. Sadly, there are places in the world where this is still the case. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, and it's unfortunate that it is often those with dubious intentions who understand this best. 
It's no wonder that most oppress oppressive regimes turn to book banning and burning at some stage, or that illiteracy has been used through the centuries as a means of controlling entire groups of people. But even those of us fortunate enough to live in a largely literate society, surrounded by more books than can be read in a thousand lifetimes, don't always enjoy it. Plenty of people take little pleasure in reading, still haunted by a mind-numbingly dull encounter in their school English class, or simply baffled that anyone would look to a book for fun when there are so many other things you could be doing. Whereas me? Well, let's just say that as far as I'm concerned, if there's a heaven, then it's a library. At my primary school in the depths of winter, while other children played sports outside, you'd have found me in the cloakroom, sitting on a bench against a cast-iron radiator and hidden from view behind a wall of hanging coats, reading a book. There was nothing so thrilling to me as waiting for the sound of retreating adult footsteps to disappear into the stillness of the night before pulling out my trusty torch and reading under the bedclothes. And even now, standing in a library or bookshop, surrounded by a multitude of volumes, I feel a lingering melancholy that there are so many books I will never read. The rustle of whispering voices drifting up from one title after another, and not enough time to listen to them all. As a species, we seem to be hardwired to tell stories and to listen to others tell them. Long before YouTube, television, cinema, radio, recorded music, newspapers, books and theatre, we were telling stories round a campfire. Which is all the more remarkable if you consider the theory that there are only seven stories in the world. Comedy, tragedy, rebirth, overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest and voyage and return. Think of almost any story and it will fall into one of these categories. Of course, not all tales can be easily pigeonholed. Many famous stories combine two or more of these, and something like Lord of the Rings manages to cover all seven. But it is an intriguing hypothesis, nevertheless. One addressed in astonishing detail in The Seven Basic Plots by the appropriately named Christopher Booker. And I can also testify to its unrivalled success as a door jam, paperweight and writing desk. You see, my own obsession has evolved from loving books to loving books about books. Along with Booker's exhaustive volume, I can recommend The Child That Books Built by Francis Spuford, a very readable though quite academic text about the psychology behind the books we read when we're young, combined with the author's memoirs of his own childhood. Library by Matthew Battle, which chronicles the history of libraries all over the world, from Alexandria to the Dewey Decimal System. And Ex Libris by Anne Faderman, a collection of witty, eloquent essays about being an unashamed bibliophile. Later this month, the Hay Literary Festival will descend once more onto the small town of Hay-on-Wye. Tucked away near the Brecon Beacons National Park, on the border between England and Wales, this quiet town is famous for having a few thousand residents and 39 second-hand bookshops, thus making it a mecca for book lovers everywhere. Each year it hosts the festival, where writers from all corners of the globe and covering every subject imag imaginable arrive for lectures, discussion panels and book signings. I have only attended once and even that was risky. But I was rather proud of my restraint. I only came home with 13 books, despite visiting all 39 of these hallowed bookshops. 
I spent hours wandering through dusty basements, rickety shelving and bargain bins, thumbing old penguin paperbacks and linen-bound everyman titles, admiring first editions and collector's sets I could not afford. Amongst the piles of volumes, I was thrilled to discover a little hardback copy of the poetical works of Keats, with a faded blue cover and a handwritten quotation on the flyleaf that read, Thou dost eclipse every delight with sweet remembering, and grief unto my darling joys dost bring. The book had belonged to someone called Arrowsmith, and the inscription is dated August 1940. Perhaps, like the original, it was a lady glimpsed in Vauxhall who inspired this longing. But I suspect a more complicated tale lies behind the faded handwriting. A story we will never know but one, I'll wager, which you are now turning over in your mind and writing your own version. For we are all creatures of myth, keepers of legends and tellers of tales. Now, as for knitting in the news, um, no doubt you've seen lots of adverts and um, discussions and features and so on on uh, the new film that's come out, Coraline, um, which uh, is the based on the Neil Gaiman book. Um, and the reason there has been um, a bit of discussion about it in knitting circles is uh, because of the fabulous knitwear on display. Um, it's a stop-motion animation film, so not an obvious place for knitwear, it has to be said. Um, but... It, it, the character, the, the main character, features some amazing knitwear, um, which has been knitted to scale um, by uh, this incredible knitter called Althea Chrome. And she knits on a scale of, I think it's 1 to 12, which means she has about 80 stitches per inch. And she's knitting on needles that are, you know, she makes out of um, metal wire. And that are so thin and so tiny, I can't imagine how she can even begin to see what she's doing. But not only is she knitting on such a small scale, but the detail of her work is extraordinary. She does very complicated intarsia. She does lace work, um, all sorts of things. And uh, it just looks stunning. So I believe it's a pair of gloves and a star sweater appear in the film. And on her blog is a very sweet little video where she's just talking about her miniature knitting and knitting for the film and you can see that so that's been doing the rounds but I have to say apparently she's she's the only person in the world who knits like this as far as she's aware and uh, I'm not surprised you'd go cross-eyed um and it takes her weeks or even months to make these things and no wonder um with that number of stitches but uh yeah, but check it out. The, the film sounds sounds uh, sounds great. It's meant to be really, really good. Um, quite dark and twisted for a, a children's tale, as it were. Um, so I'm going to see that next week, I think, or the week after, which I'm looking forward to. The other thing which I've spotted in relation to the film, and, um, and now at this point I'm wondering, is it Coraline or Coraline? I'm not sure which way around you pronounce it, but um, either way, there's um, a, a fantastic advert that somebody has turned up. But uh, what somebody has filmed is an advert for Coraline. Um, and it's been really cleverly done because it's a stop motion film. They've created a stop motion advert. And it's basically, it's like a Flickr book. And um, uh, it's on the uh, uh, subway tunnel. And as you go past on the subway carriage, um, because of the speed, obviously, all the pictures blend together. 
and it turns into a little moving animated advert for the film, which I just think is really clever. Um, and uh, so somebody has posted up a link to that on, on YouTube where they, they filmed it with their um, camera phone or something. And um, so, to, so it gives you an idea of it. Obviously, it's not a brilliant video quality, but it, it gives you the gist. Um, but I think it's an innovative way to advertise the film. So uh, I, th I think that's great fun. As for the Eurovision Song Contest, if this is something you're not familiar with, if it's something you haven't seen, you need to get onto YouTube right now. Um, it's quite amazing. Um, as the name suggests, this is a European-wide singing contest. And it is infamous for having some extraordinary costumes, some bizarre staging, uh, a very mixed bag of talent, and some very curious songs. Um, it's usually done by people who might be fairly well known in their home country, but it's never really, these songs aren't really performed by sort of big celebrities necessarily. Um, and uh, the, the enthusiasm and the seriousness that people that people make of it is, is, is wonderful as well. These are people very dedicated to their Eurovision song. And um, it's, uh, it's a very interesting look at different tastes in different countries and you, you get a brief sense of what perhaps people may be listening to in Croatia um, or Azerbaijan. Um, but uh, the UK entry, um, it, we're always slightly cringing about because it's, it's always a sort of disco pop ballad type shiny sparkly monstrosity. Um, we haven't won for years and years and years and I doubt we ever will again, to be honest. There's a lot of debate about all the, the political angle of the voting. Um, and uh, so the whole thing is slightly farcical, but it is fabulously entertaining. Unfortunately, I was out last night when the final was on, so I didn't see it, um, but I will be checking it out on YouTube. I've had a quick look um, at the newspapers, at the photos they've got of some of the acts, and I have to say some of them have caught my eye immediately. Um, one performance which I did actually see, I assume it must have been the semi-finals or something earlier in the week, was um, Israel's entry. Um, and uh, rather touchingly, actually, they had a duet, two women, one Arab, one Israeli, singing a song, There Must Be Another Way. So you can't, you can't really argue with the sentiment there, you know, it's a nice idea. Um, and uh, so that, that was their entry. Um, Armenia had a very interesting costume, I assume some sort of national dress or traditional outfit that involved a lot of fur-edged velvet, must have been really quite hot under those lights and some very complicated hairstyles going on, um, which for some reason was then combined with a, a light display of those kind of bright green lasers cutting across the stage, which was an interesting juxtaposition of, of styles and periods. Um, Denmark, bizarrely, have a song that appears to have been co-written by Ronan Keating of a boy's own fame. Um, quite why he's writing songs for Denmark, I'm not quite sure. Um, Germany's entry, equally bizarrely, featured um, uh, Dieter von Tees, the burlesque dancer you may be familiar with. Um, and she was in a, judging from the picture, um, she was very scantily clad, um, looking very beautiful as ever. But again, what, what her relation was to Germany's song, I'm not quite sure. I will definitely have to check that one out um, on YouTube. Albania was frankly disturbing. Um, it featured um, a, a dancer or performer of some sort who was in a bright blue bodysuit, complete with a face mask that literally covered his whole face in 
fabric, you know, like a hood that goes down over your face as well. So he's, he's you know, barely human and just looking very peculiar as if he's into some sort of S&M bondage type thing. Um, this was accompanied by another man who was sort of dressed fairly normally, but then has this scary clown makeup on his face, which also looked pretty disturbing. And the singer was a young girl who looks like she's off to a prom sponsored by Disney. She's got blonde ringlets and a pink fluffy dress with lots, you know, all the petticoats and things. And just the combination of these people, it just looks really wrong. I'm not really sure what's going on there. I dread to think what the song was like. But just from that one image, it, it looks painful. Um, Norway are celebrating at the moment as they won um, with uh, a sort of boy band looking chap called Alexander Ryback. Uh, the Ukraine also um, would, had a, a slightly um, odd entry, um, which has been described in the newspapers as um, a, a porn version of the film Gladiator. And looking at the picture, I kind of see what they're getting at. You've got a bunch of people dressed as uh, sort of Roman centurions with the big helmets and the, the smallest skirted outfits you have ever seen. It's like a cross between Gladiator and 300, perhaps, um, but just very scanty. Um and, uh, and and the lady also in question who's being hoisted by all these men and sort of thrown about the place, um, likewise scantily clad. How this relates to the Ukraine or to that particular song she was singing, again, I'm none the wiser, but um, I will definitely be trying to find out. I think that could be very entertaining. Um, and as for the UK, we had the very lovely Jade Ewan singing uh, a song written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, no less. Um, and apparently we came fifth which really isn't as shameful as I might have thought. So um, we were never going to win, but uh, not, not too shameful an entry. And at least we tend to go more for cheesy pop numbers than, than the kind of horrific um, outlandish costumes and so on. But maybe that's, maybe that's the problem. Maybe we need to be a little bit more adventurous. Maybe we need to start planning some of those outrageous costumes and laser displays for next year. Now, I mentioned earlier that I need your help. And here is why. Um, we're coming into the summer now, inevitably. Uh, weddings are on the horizon. Um, and uh, I have a couple to attend, uh, which is all very lovely, joyous occasions. Um, but they're both happening towards the end of the summer. One of them um, is sort of edging into September. And uh, you know what the weather's like in the UK. Summer weddings, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it can go either way um, with the rain and the cold and clouds and so on. So I've got my outfit. I've got a nice summer posh frock to wear to a wedding. That's all fine. The problem is if it gets chilly and you need something to put over the top. So I was thinking, well, perfect. We will knit something. Um, but this would involve knitting some sort of wrap or shawl, probably something lacy, um, which I haven't really attempted before. Nothing very technical. I've only done very simple lace repeats. Um, I think, oh, well, I did the hemlock ring blanket, but because that was in such a heavyweight yarn, it was a little bit easier to do. In this case, I'm going to have to do it in something quite fine. And yes, it may be that I'm looking at, at, at kids' silk haze. I'm stupid, aren't I? It's a foolish idea. I shouldn't even entertain the thought, and yet it persists. Um, so I've knitted in kids' silk haze before. I did wisp which is a pattern from Knitty you may be familiar with. It's just, it's a rectangular scarf wrap. It's, it's basically a scarf that has buttons at the end so you can 
tie it, um, you, you know, fasten it like a wrap. And that was very simple because it's just alternate um, sections of garter stitch and then a very simple um, uh, fishnet lace pattern, which even I could cope with. So I could just make that again um, in kid silk haze, which was fine because it was simple enough that it didn't, you know, sort of get all horribly tangled. But is there a shawl pattern I'm missing? I've, I've been looking on Ravelry at some of the more popular ones and, um, and there are certainly some, some very pretty ones to choose from. So the ones that I spotted in, in Ravelry, I've added to my favourites. So you can see them on my Ravelry page if you look there. But um, mostly the ones I've been looking at are slightly simple. Um, there was a melon pattern shawl, um, which looks very lovely, although in the, in the picture that's done in a heavier weight, so I'm not sure what it would be like in something like Kid Silk Haze. Um, and then there's another one that's called Simple Yet Effective Shawl which is basically what I'm looking for, actually. And that's, you know, does what it says on the tin, and that may be perfect. Um, I love the Shetland Triangle. It's very pretty. Um, so maybe that in, in a sort of um, lace weight silk or something would be really nice. But it's so hard to know which one to choose. There's so many patterns out there. Um, so any suggestions from experienced shawl knitters, I would be very grateful at this point. Um, I think something that I can fasten around my shoulders would be good rather than a sort of scarf type thing, because I don't want it to be flapping about and getting in the way. Um, but I don't want it to completely cover up my very nice dress, which I rather like. And, you know, you don't want to have to be hiding underneath a big heavy coat if it gets chilly. So any bright ideas, please do let me know. Hoxtonhandmade at gmail.com. And um, as ever, I'm Hoxton on Ravelry, Hoxton Handmade on Twitter, um, and there's the Hoxton Handmade blog as well. And in, a, in an update on the ongoing quest to prevent knitting being labelled as purely an activity for grandmas, um, uh, I can report so a few new developments. Um, one is that on Friday I spotted that the Guardian's radio review for that day, they'd chosen to review Cast On, um, the fabulous knitting podcast, which I thought was great. At least, A, they were embracing podcasts as part of their radio remit, which I thought was good. And the fact that they, after eight series and many years, have finally realised that quite a lot of people are listening to this and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a go. Um, the review's not very long, but it is largely positive, especially given that the, 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 the reviewer clearly isn't a knitter themselves. So they must have been slightly baffled by some of the content. Um, but so that was great. And I thought at least some nice publicity for for knitting in general um, and uh, slightly counteracting the damage of Britain's Got Talent and the, the, the knitter natter knitting people. Um, and, uh, and I had a little conversation on Twitter with Elevenses, um, who also pointed out um, something else that she had spotted, um, which is that uh, on a website, um, there's a, a photo um, of Mia, the singer, um, with a copy of Stitch and Bitch in a bookshop. Um, and a photo of her looking very interested in what she's reading, as well she should, as we know, Stitch and Bitch being a fantastic book. And um, that's what taught me most of what I know. Um, so there you go. You know, you couldn't get younger, younger trendier, more non-grandma than that. So if you spot anything else like that that may further the cause, do let me know about it. I'll put it on the blog and in the podcast. And uh, hopefully we can build up a, a, a whole catalogue of references with which we can smack people over the head when they start thinking that knitting is outdated and nobody does it anymore.
Not that I'm advocating violence, you understand. Well, not much anyway. But um, yes, I think something that needs to be addressed. Which brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you very much for listening, as ever. Thank, thanks again to those of you who have been recommending this podcast to others on Ravelry and on Twitter and so on. It's very kind of you. Um, and it's the only way that anybody outside my family will ever be listening to this, is if you pass it around. So please do. If, you in, if you've enjoyed it, then please let me know. And uh, if you can mention it to others and so on, that would be very kind of you indeed. So until next week, happy knitting. And thanks for listening. <laughs>